Introduction Welcome to the Abata Audio Guide to Lewis, Dublin's Timeline. The Lewis is Dublin's light rail transit service. The construction of the Lewis network saw some of the biggest infrastructural developments of modern Dublin. During the construction of the Lewis lines, experienced teams of archaeologists monitored the works and carefully identified and excavated any archaeological remains that were encountered. Their meticulous records have revealed a wealth of new information about Dublin, and this audio guide helps to tell the story of what was revealed, along with the history of each area. The guide is broken into a series of tracks, with each track representing one of the Lewis stops along the central portion of the Lewis Red and Green Lines, from Euston Station in the west to Charlemont in the east. Dublin was one of the first urban settlements on the island of Ireland, and for much of its history, it was the largest. Human activity around Dublin has roots deep in Ireland's ancient past. Dublin began life as a cluster of small settlements near the mouth of the River Liffey. Around 1,500 years ago, the settlement was known as Arclia, which means Ford of the Hurdles, relating to a wooden hurdle or bridge that allowed people to cross the river, believed to be where the Father Matthew Bridge stands today. Later, a small monastery was founded next to a swirling pool of water where the River Liffey met the River Poddle, today believed to lie buried under the gardens at the rear of Dublin Castle. The dark waters gave the monastery, and eventually the city, its name, Dove Lynn, meaning Black Pool. Dublin Bay and the Liffey were also attractive to the Vikings. They had begun to raid the Irish coast from around 795 AD, but by the middle of the 9th century, the Vikings had established permanent settlements from where they could raid and trade further inland. Their early bases were large fortified ship camps known as longforts. They called the longfort they established here Difflin. That would later become anglicised to Dublin. To this day, the city bears two names that echo its long history. Dublin and Balia Arclia. Join us as we travel along a timeline of Dublin's history. Houston Station. Houston Station is one of Ireland's busiest railway stations, with tens of thousands of passengers travelling to and from the station every day. Construction began on the station in 1844, with the first trains running by 1848. The 19th century was a time of industrial development in Ireland, due to the improvement of transport links between towns and cities. The Great Southern and Western Railway Line accessed the south and west of the country. The contractor for the railway line was William Dargan from County Leash, who became known as the father of Irish railways. William was the eldest of a large family of tenant farmers. He attended the local hedge school in the area and started work in a surveyor's office in Carlow. With the help of powerful allies like Sir Henry Parnell, MP for Leash, 
He secured a job constructing part of a routeway between Holyhead and London with the renowned Scottish engineer Thomas Telford. While working on this job, William further augmented his skills and passion for engineering and construction. He eventually brought his skills back to Ireland and was responsible for constructing over 1,000 miles of railway line across the country. He was a very fair employer and believed in looking after those that worked for him in order to yield the best results. The high standard of care was also passed on to the early customers. Passengers who travelled on the line could avail of foot warmers in winter and picnics in summer. The fascinating glimpses of Dublin's past unearthed during the recent works on the Lewis were not the first archaeological discoveries to be made during rail construction. During the construction of Houston Station and the railway, workers found the remains of a large number of Viking graves, complete with their weapons, such as swords, spears, shields and items and artefacts of personal dress. An account of the discoveries was made at the time by Dublin antiquities dealer James Underwood. The workmen found in one grave an entire skeleton lying to the east. The neck was encircled by a number of beads beautifully ornamented. The skull, in attempting to preserve it entire, crumbled away to dust in the workman's hand. Unfortunately, back in those days, Ireland's strict laws concerning the proper care for archaeology were nearly a century away and excavations were rudimentary at best. Though many of these remarkable artefacts are on display in the National Museum of Ireland on Kildare Street. The handsome building of Houston Station was designed by the eminent English architect Sancton Wood. It was originally named Kingsbridge Station after the cast iron bridge located beside the station that crossed the Liffey. Both the station and the bridge were renamed in 1941 to commemorate Sean Houston, a Republican leader who was executed after the 1916 Easter Rising. Sean Houston worked for the Great Southern and Western Railway Company as a clerk and was initially stationed in Limerick for six years. He joined Fina Aaron, a scouting club for young men, in 1909 and was highly active in the Limerick branch. By the time he joined the Irish Volunteers in 1913, he had moved back to Dublin and was working in the station. He became Vice Commandant of the Dublin Brigade of the Volunteers. He and his force of 30 men aimed to control the approaches to the city centre from the west. They held out for two days before he surrendered to spare the lives of his men. He was executed on May 8th. He was just 25 years old, making him the youngest of the executed leaders. In one of his final letters before he faced the firing squad, he wrote, Whatever I have done, I have done as a soldier of Ireland, in what I believe to be my country's best interests. I have, thank God, no vain regrets. After all, it is better to be a corpse than a coward. The bridge outside Houston Station was originally opened to the public in 1829 to allow horse carriages to pass over the Liffey. A €4 million euro refurbishment of the bridge 
to facilitate the operation of Lewis Red Line took place between 2001 and 2002. It involved the cleaning and refurbishment of the cast iron bridge and granite features, the construction of a new deck to accommodate the Lewis track and utilities, and the restoration of the historic balustrade. Directly opposite Houston Station, you can see the grand edifice of Dr. Stevens Hospital, now the headquarters of the Health Service Executive. In 1718, Dr. Richard Stevens, president of the College of Physicians, left money in a trust to his sister Griselda for the construction of a hospital. She paid for the construction of a new hospital on this site. This was an ideal location away from the city centre and infections. The hospital was opened in 1733 and was known as the cleanest in Europe. Griselda lived in an apartment on the site and continued to fundraise after the hospital was opened. When she died, she bequeathed her entire fortune to the hospital. Unfortunately for Griselda, a strange folk tale developed about her appearance. The legend says that she had the features of a pig. The tale gained credence as Griselda, who lived as a recluse, wore a veil to shade her face as she suffered from an eye disorder. This was all the evidence the storytellers of Dublin needed. In their tales, the veil did not shield Griselda's sensitive eyes, it shielded the public's sensitive eyes from Griselda's pig-like features. They told the story that Griselda's appearance was the result of a curse placed on her mother when she called a beggar woman's children a litter of pigs. However, others point out that this tale only became popular more than a century after Griselda's death, so it is possibly just an enduring urban myth. Two headstones stand side by side in the grounds of Dr. Stevens' hospital. They mark the final resting place of men who fought on opposing sides during the 1916 Easter Rising. One marks the grave of Irish volunteer Sean Owens, who was shot on the first day of the Rising. The other headstone marks the final resting place of five British soldiers who were also killed in action during those fateful days of Easter 1916. Although enemies in life, they now rest peacefully side by side in death. The site of the Dublin National Shell Factory lies on the banks of the River Liffey, to the right of Houston Station on Parkgate Street. This once served as a major employer of women during the years of the First World War, with up to 600 women working on assembly lines to create artillery shells for the British war effort. The National Shell Factory had manufactured half a million shells by the end of the war, and by the summer of 1919, the factory was sold. The site was later used to repair army lorries and vehicles until it was burned down during the War of Independence in the 1920s. Museum, Collins Barracks the National Museum of Ireland.
The high stone boundary wall of Collins Barracks forms the backdrop of the Lewis Museum stop. In 1665, James Butler, Duke of Ormond and Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, was gifted the land where Collins Barracks now stands. It was then known as the Palace Gardens. His grandson, another James Butler, sold the land to Queen Anne in 1703 for the purpose of developing an army barracks. The initial works were undertaken between 1704 and 1710 and were overseen by Limerick man and veteran soldier Thomas Burr. The barracks were known as the Royal Barracks until they were renamed Collins Barracks in 1992 in memory of Michael Collins, the first commander-in-chief of the Irish Army. The barracks are believed to have been the longest-serving army base in the world, until the Irish Army moved out in 1997, when the barracks were transformed into the Decorative Arts and History branch of the National Museum of Ireland. It was here in the Royal Barracks that Theobald Wolfe Tone died. Wolfe Tone was one of the key leaders of the 1798 United Irishmen Rebellion. He is known as the father of Irish Republicanism and remains a revered figure to this day. He sought to free Ireland from British rule and to unite all religious denominations on the island of Ireland, be they Protestant, Catholic or dissenter. The United Irishmen rose in rebellion in the summer of 1798. Wolfe Tone was captured off the coast of Ireland, leading a French fleet that was coming to assist with the liberation of Ireland. He was brought to the Royal Barracks, tried and sentenced to death. When he learned that he was to be hanged like a common felon rather than shot, he cut his own throat with a penknife. He died one week later from the wound. The park immediately in front of Collins Barracks is known as Croppy's Acre. It was rumoured that this was the burial place of many of those who had been slain during the rebellion of 1798. Two centuries later, in 1998, archaeological excavations took place in the park in advance of the creation of a commemorative garden to honour the dead. However, during the course of the excavations, no evidence of a mass burial was discovered. When the Lewis Red Line was constructed, it was designed to have no lasting impact on the park or the barracks. The boundary of the Memorial Park was set back to make way for the Lewis, and so the railings and stone plinth had to be restored and reinstated as part of the works. Smithfield This area on the northern side of the River Liffey was once known as Oxmantown. The name derives from the Old Norse Ostman, meaning men from the east. Such strong Nordic roots in the name indicates the Viking settlement of this area. In 2011, archaeologists discovered evidence of this settlement to the immediate east of the Smithfield stop on Hammond Lane. Archaeological excavations identified a large Viking house similar in type to those found at Wood Quay. The house is thought to date to the 11th century. It was built from wooden posts with wattle walls made from woven rods of hazel and alder. 
The house had two aisles that served as seating areas during the day and beds at night. The aisles flanked a central hearth, which would have been the heart of the home. The house was protected from its close proximity to the Liffey by a series of earthen banks and wooden breakwaters. Radiocarbon dating showed that the house dated to around the 11th century. The discovery of the house offers conclusive proof that the Viking settlement of Dublin expanded much further than had previously been thought. The excavation site is visible from the Lewis as a low-lying undeveloped site enclosed by railings. During the construction of the Lewis Red Line, a new street known as Tram Street was built to link Smithfield and Forecourt's Lewis stops. This route follows that of an earlier lane illustrated on John Rock's maps of Dublin that were drawn in 1756. This lane vanished in the 19th century when foundries were constructed over it. Archaeological excavations during the construction of the Lewis Red Line discovered the burial of a young man here. He was buried sometime in the 18th century. Careful analysis of his bones by an osteoarchaeologist revealed that he is likely to have been aged between 17 and 25 years old. He is thought to have been buried in this location as the land originally belonged to St Mickens Church before it became an industrialised zone. St Mickens was founded in 1095 and named after a Danish saint. It's the oldest parish church on the north side of the River Liffey. The parish church and associated crypts were rebuilt in the 17th century. It remains a fascinating place to visit to this day, being renowned both for its naturally preserved mummies and as the location where the composer Handel practised the Messiah in 1741. The name Smithfield was not assigned to this area until 1664, when the city corporation took over part of the lands of Oxmantown and laid out new streets for development and for the formalisation of the city's various livestock markets. The market itself was established in 1665 and was called Smithfield after the famous cattle market area in London. Its name in Irish, Margana Firma, indicates its agricultural roots. It was only in the early 20th century that the now familiar horse market began. It took place on every second Thursday at noon, with tolls charged on all animals sold. The horse market continues to this day, with biannual sales that attract large crowds. Before the market was established, this area was associated with a notorious thief known as Scald Brother, who was reputed to roam the area to rob people, then make his escape using a network of underground passageways. He was eventually captured and hanged for his crimes. A memorial bench at the Smithfield Lewis stop commemorates Dave Conway, who worked as a construction manager on the Lewis Red Line. He was tragically killed in a motorcycle accident at the age of 38 in April 2002. The bench was designed in granite by artist James Gannon, with a tram line embedded in the structure. Forecourts Dublin's Forecourts, established in 1922, 
are located to the immediate south of the Lewis Stop. However, the history of this area dates back to the establishment of the first settlements. Church Street, to the west of the forecourt stop, marks the route of the Sleamy Lucre, one of the four ancient highways of Ireland. It ran south from Dunseverick in County Antrim, linking Dublin to Tara, and is therefore also known as the High King's Road. It crossed the River Liffey via the Ford of the Hurdles, an early crossing accessible only at low tide. This ford has been replaced numerous times throughout Dublin's history. We know that a formal bridge structure stood at this site from at least the 12th century, as a bridge is referred to in the papers of John Cummin, the first Anglo-Norman Archbishop of Dublin. The Ford of the Hurdles is believed to have been located to the west of Father Matthew Bridge, which crosses the Liffey directly in front of the Four Courts. Moving forward through time, by 1911, Dublin, while still under the authority of Great Britain, had the worst housing conditions of any city in the United Kingdom. The once grand Georgian houses had been divided and subdivided again and again into Warren-like tenement buildings, dangerously packed and overcrowded with the poor of the city. Church Street and its environs had once been a well-to-do neighbourhood, home to lawyers and their families. However, by the turn of the 20th century, this street, and others across the city, had been turned into dilapidated tenements. It was recorded a single house could be home to over a hundred people, and it is believed that more than 26,000 families, nearly one-third of Dublin's population, lived in tenements, with each family forced to eat, live and sleep in just one room. A disaster eventually struck in September 1913 when numbers 66 and 67 Church Street collapsed. Seven people were killed, including three young children and a teenager who died whilst desperately trying to save his four-year-old sister. He had just rescued his youngest sister, who was only a year old, and after carrying her to safety, he ran back into the building to grab the four-year-old but brother and sister were struck by collapsing masonry and killed. The buildings had previously been identified as being in a dangerous condition, and remedial work had been carried out with an inspector signing off on the works just weeks before the disaster. In the aftermath of the collapse, an inquiry into Dublin's tenements was carried out. This area to the north of the Four Courts was the scene of some of the fiercest fighting during the 1916 Easter Rising. The four courts and surrounding streets were commanded by Edward Daly. His men barricaded the narrow streets and poured down fire from the surrounding rooftops and windows onto the British soldiers of the South Staffordshire Regiment. Casualties among the British forces were high, with 14 soldiers killed and 32 wounded. In retaliation, General Lowe, commander of the British forces in Dublin, ordered that the rebels were not to be made prisoners. On the evening of Friday the 28th of April, and continuing on to the Saturday morning, British troops smashed their way into several houses along North King Street and killed 15 civilian men. Some of the men were shot, while others were bayoneted. 
This brutal slaying of unarmed civilians was one of the darkest moments of the 1916 Rising. Among the dead was Thomas Hickey and his 16-year-old son, Christopher. They had been dragged from the butcher's shop that Thomas owned. An eyewitness recorded hearing Christopher pleading for his father's life before they were both shot. Later, the British military governor, General Maxwell, subsequently admitted that possibly some unfortunate incidents which we should now regret may have occurred. It is even possible that under the horrors of these attacks, some of the men saw red. That is the inevitable consequence of a rebellion of this kind. However, a senior civil servant, Edward Troop, admitted in a letter to British Prime Minister Asquith that had a similar incident happened in England, the soldiers would have been prosecuted. The Four Courts, which fronts onto the River Liffey, is one of the most instantly recognisable structures in the city. The original building that once stood on this site was St Xavier's Church, which was later developed into a Dominican priory. The priory had a chequered history, as it was burned in 1304 and then rebuilt. However, soon after, it was largely destroyed, along with large parts of the city, to prevent them falling into the hands of the Scottish army of Edward Bruce during his invasion in 1317. The citizens demolished the building to use the stone to extend the city wall and quay. The priory was subsequently rebuilt on the orders of the Crown. After the Reformation of the 16th century, the King's Inn took over the building. The building that stands on the site today was originally a public records office, but it was later decided that it should become the Four Courts. The original architect, Thomas Cooley, was replaced by James Gandon, who had to merge the existing construction work with his new designs. The building was constructed to house the Four Courts of Chancery, King's Bench, Exchequer, and common pleas. The Four Courts played a significant role during the Civil War of 1922, and the iconic dome was completely destroyed during fighting, and thousands of records that had been stored in the public records office were lost forever. Further along the Lewis Red Line, towards Jervis, is the Wholesale Fruit and Vegetable Market. This was developed in 1892, as there were concerns about hygiene standards at existing markets along the streets of this area. The markets here were known as the Ormond Market, a legacy that goes back to an earlier 17th century market established under the patronage of James Butler, Duke of Ormond, and Sir Humphrey Jervis. The present building on the site has beautifully detailed brick and ironwork decorations in the form of fruit and vegetables and the coat of arms of Dublin City above its entrance. Jervis Street. From the forecourts, the Lewis passes through the medieval precinct of St. Mary's Abbey, once one of the wealthiest and most important Cistercian abbeys in Ireland. St. Mary's Abbey was founded in 1139 originally for the Benedictine order, before it became a Cistercian abbey around eight years later. It was unique amongst other Irish medieval abbeys as it was located in the centre of a major urban city rather than a rural setting. 
wealthy patrons granted extensive tracts of land to the abbey in order to be buried within its sacred grounds. At its peak, St Mary's is said to have possessed over 5,000 acres of land in North County Dublin, along with an enormous estate in South County Dublin, 134 houses in the city, a private quay at Bullock Harbour and a second harbour at the mouth of the Bradog River. All of this wealth did not go unnoticed, and during the dissolution of the monasteries by King Henry VIII, the extensive estates of St Mary's were incorporated into the properties of the English Crown. Many of the deserted abbey buildings were dismantled and their stone recycled for construction works, including that of the original Essex Bridge. After the abbey was dissolved a few short years later, the land it once owned was divided up amongst men that were loyal to the king. The chapter house was used as a potato and grain store until it was taken over by the Irish state in the 1940s. Over time, the remaining precinct walls and buildings fell into disrepair. Few remains of the original abbey buildings have ever been found or archaeologically recorded. Today, only two rooms of this once great foundation survive, the chapter house and a short passageway or slipe. Both of these medieval features are open to the public. The chapter house is now approximately two metres below today's street level, an indication of the continuous development of the area since the medieval period. The area around the abbey was dramatically transformed with the formation of the Wide Streets Commission in 1757. The Wide Streets Commission was tasked with redeveloping the narrow medieval streets of the old city to create a modern street layout to rival those of other major European cities. One of the first tasks that the Commission undertook was the creation of a new street, now called Parliament Street, which links City Hall and Dame Street on the south side of the Liffey, with Essex Bridge and Capel Street on the north. They also developed Sackville Street, which later became O'Connell Street, along with Carlisle Bridge, now O'Connell Bridge. This allowed Parnell Square to develop as a prestigious area for Dublin's wealthy elite. The work of the Wide Streets Commission literally paved the way for the emergence of Georgian Dublin, with its magnificent public buildings, wide thoroughfares and formal architecture. Abbey Street The lands in the vicinity of the Lewis Abbey Street stop were developed following the construction of the key walls of Bachelors Walk and Eden Quay that allowed more land to be reclaimed from the River Liffey. Prior to the medieval period, the Liffey was once much wider. In the late 17th century, lands from Abbey Street to the present key walls were reclaimed and developed. The archaeological investigations during the construction of the Lewis Red Line substation discovered a number of reclamation layers, as well as a 17th-century quay or mooring pier underneath O'Connell Street. One of the more unusual artefacts recovered during these works was a small circular bottle seal. It was inscribed with 1711, the date of its manufacture, along with the name David Howard. 
During the early 18th century, it was the height of fashion for wealthy Dubliners to have their own personalised glass bottles. They marked the seal of the bottle with their name so they could be identified when they sent their bottles to the wine merchant to be refilled from their casks. The development of the area in the 18th century was conducted as part of the Wide Streets Commission. Abbey Street Lower was widened to improve the views to Sackville Street, now known as O'Connell Street, which upon completion of the construction of O'Connell Bridge in 1880 became the main thoroughfare of the city. Dublin's tram service began in 1872 with the first trams being drawn by horses. By the turn of the 20th century, Dublin's tram system had become electrified. Trams were a common feature of Sackville Street. These trams shuttled up and down connecting the city centre with the suburbs, in much the same role as the Lewis performs today. The main stop for the trams was adjacent to Nelson's Pillar, where the spire or Monument of Light stands today. During the 1916 Rising, a number of trams were toppled onto their sides and used as barricades by the rebels. Dublin's last tram ran in 1949, as the popularity of cars and the bogey, an early type of bus, meant that the system had become unpopular and outdated. With the over-reliance on cars since then, Dublin's traffic congestion has showed the time for trams has come again and the Lewis Cross City, an extension of the Lewis Green Line, will introduce trams to O'Connell Street once more. Lewis Cross City will be operational in 2017. Wynne's Hotel on Lower Abbey Street, just a few doors up from the Lewis stop, is steeped in the history of the city. The hotel was constructed in 1845, in 1913, one of the most significant events in the hotel's history took place in the Saints and Scholars Lounge, where a meeting was held to establish the Irish Volunteer Force. The meeting was chaired by Owen McNeill, and it was attended by Patrick Pearce, The O'Rahilly, Sean McDermida, Eamon Kant, and other key Republican figures. Four of those in attendance at the meeting were killed during the 1916 Rising and its aftermath. Following the first meeting, detectives from Dublin Castle warned the manager of Wynne's Hotel not to allow any further gatherings. But the hotel ignored the threat and the Irish Volunteer Committee continued to meet there regularly. On the 2nd of April 1914, the inaugural public meeting of Cumann was also held in Wynne's Hotel. Cumann that translates to the Society of Women, was the female division of the Irish Volunteers. The meeting was presided over by Agnes O'Farrelly, who was elected president. Cumann would also go on to play a leading role in the 1916 Rising under the leadership of Countess Markievicz and Kathleen Clark. On Marlborough Street, just beside the Lewis Abbey Street stop, you will find the Abbey Theatre. The late 19th century was a period that became known as the Literary Revival, and figures such as W.B. Yeats, Lady Gregory and J.M. Singh were at the forefront of this movement that was inspired by Ireland's Gaelic heritage and the growth of Irish nationalism. In 1899, 
Yeats and Lady Gregory founded the Irish Literary Theatre with the hope of opening a national theatre. A wealthy English benefactor, Annie Horniman, provided money to convert the former Mechanics Institute building on Abbey Street into a 500-seat theatre. And in 1904, with the help of Singh, the Abbey Theatre was opened. This theatre became the home of Irish drama and the performing arts, and the Abbey became the venue for a host of plays about Irish life. The early years of the theatre were not without controversy. One of the first plays to be performed, The Countess Kathleen by Yeats, was met with a storm of protest from the Catholic Church for its supposed blasphemous content. There were further riots in the audience of the Abbey in 1926 when the crowd took issue with Sean O'Casey's play The Plough and the Stars for its portrayal of Irish womanhood and nationalism. The play was set in Dublin's tenement slums in the months before and after the 1916 Rising. Reflecting on the audience reaction, O'Casey later wrote that the whole place became a mass of moving, roaring people. The high, hysterical, distorted voices of women kept screaming that Irish girls were noted over the world for their modesty and that Ireland's name was holy. Up in the balcony, people were singing the soldier's song while a tall fellow frantically beat time on the balcony rail with a walking stick. O'Casey had a disagreement with the Abbey when they rejected his play The Silver Tassie in 1928. The strict official censorship of post-independence Ireland led to a period of stagnation for the Abbey Theatre. The old Abbey Theatre was badly damaged by fire in 1951, and a new theatre opened on the old site in 1966. Bussaurus Located on Store Street, the Bussaurus stop takes its name from the bus station. This area was once part of the Liffey Estuary and all of this land has been reclaimed. Prior to the construction of the Custom House in the 1790s, the area was protected from the sea by a key wall or road which dated from around 1725. This area became a hive of industrial activity in the 18th century and the name Store Street derives from the extensive stores that were located at the head of the old dock. During the course of archaeological investigations in advance of the Lewis Red Line, 19th century brick culverts were discovered and the excavation of a services trench just outside the entrance to Store Street Garda Station, located immediately to the west of the stop, uncovered the dry stone masonry of a well. The well is thought to have served a building that was demolished in the 18th century. It was similar in construction to one excavated at Smithfield during the Lewis Red Line works. Piped water was not introduced to the north side of Dublin until the 1740s, so wells such as this were vital. The eye-catching Bosaurus building, located to the south of the stop, was designed in the 1940s by architect Michael Scott. Over the following years, however, the construction was mired in controversy and delays, with numerous objections to the scale and design of the proposed building. The modernist design did not appeal to many Dubliners, however the international architectural community hailed the design as an innovative masterpiece. Work commenced in 1947, 
but was soon halted by the new Fine Gael-led coalition government in 1948. They suggested that the building could be put to some alternative use by a government department or state agency and favoured Smithfield as the location for the new bus station. Political and media debate raged over the coming years. The artistic and architectural communities supported the project, while the broader public view was one of opposition on grounds of design and cost. Fianna Fáil returned to government in 1951 and a compromise was reached whereby the office portion of the building was to be occupied by the Department of Social Welfare, while CIE would use the bus station for its intended purpose. Work proceeded but was held up again in 1952 by a strike. In addition, many original elements of the project were curtailed due to cost considerations. In October 1953, Bus Aurus was officially opened and named Aurus McDiarmida in honour of one of the 1916 signatories. Constructed of reinforced concrete and Portland stone, and heavily influenced by Le Corbusier-style constructions, this building is considered to be one of the first examples of international modernism in Irish architecture. It won the Royal Institute of the Architects of Ireland gold medal in 1953. Standing in sharp contrast to the modernist Bosaurus architecture, the Custom House is one of Ireland's finest neoclassical civic buildings and is located just a short walk to the south of the Lewis Stop. It replaced Dublin's original Custom House, which was situated in the area of what is now Crane Lane in Temple Bar. The Custom House was designed by the renowned architect James Gandon, taking 10 years to build and some £200,000 to construct, an enormous sum at the time. The series of sculpted heads created by Edward Smith over the windows and door represent the Atlantic Ocean and the 13 major Irish rivers. Originally, the Custom House served as the headquarters for the Commissioners of Custom and Excise. However, by the beginning of the 20th century, local government formed the majority of business conducted at the Custom House. During the War of Independence, on the 25th of May 1921, 120 members of the IRA attacked and set fire to the Custom House. Many priceless documents were destroyed in the inferno that gutted the building. The Custom House has been fully restored, however, if you look closely at the rotunda, you can see it is slightly discoloured and darker than the lower sections, a scarring legacy of the fire and reconstruction. The present Liberty Hall, located to the immediate west of the Custom House, is the headquarters of the Services Industrial Professional and Technical Union, known as SIPTU, one of the largest trade unions in Ireland. It stands on what was once the site of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union headquarters during the 1913 lockout. The 1913 lockout was the largest industrial relations conflict in Irish history. It began in August 1913, when tram drivers and conductors went on strike in Dublin. The workers decided to strike in retaliation for the sacking of hundreds of union workers by William Martin Murphy, owner of the Dublin United Tramways Company. Murphy locked out union workers from their jobs and encouraged fellow members of the Dublin Chamber of Commerce to do likewise in support. The dispute raged across Dublin, 
with more than 20,000 workers involved. Protests occasionally broke into violence, and on the 31st of August, two workers died during the conflict. The dispute continued until January 1914 and remains unprecedented in its scale and ferocity. The after-effects of the lockout would go on to influence socialist republicans like James Connolly, who became a key figure in the 1916 Rising. During the 1916 Rising, the old Liberty Hall became the rallying point where the leaders of the rebellion gathered before marching onto the GPO on Easter Monday. A statue of James Connolly is located outside the gates of the Custom House. The old Liberty Hall was also the first building shelled by the British gunboat Helga during that fateful week. In 1958, the old Liberty Hall was demolished. The new building that was completed in 1964 was Dublin's first high-rise and at 17 storeys, for many years it was the tallest building in Ireland. Connolly Station. Connolly Station takes its name from the revolutionary and socialist James Connolly, who was a founding member of the Irish Labour Party and one of the key figures of the 1916 Easter Rising. The station was originally named Dublin Station when it was first opened in 1844, but it was renamed Amiens Street Station ten years later after the street on which it stands before being renamed in honour of James Connolly in 1966 during commemorations to mark the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising. The station was constructed in a neoclassical style with an Italianate facade. During the archaeological investigations at Connolly Station, a series of interconnecting subsurface vaults were discovered which formed part of the station's original stores. A large imposing feature of this area of Dublin is the International Financial Services Centre, or IFSC, located along the quays to the south of Connolly Station. This was established in 1987 and was set up by the Irish government with EU approval as a location for a range of internationally traded services such as banking and insurance and investment management. It is home to half of the world's top 50 banks and half of the world's top 20 insurance companies. The government provided incentives in the late 1980s to encourage investment and urban renewal by the private sector. The development of the IFSC has led to the redevelopment of the Docklands, extending further east. As part of this redevelopment, many archaeological finds have come to light. Some of the most important were the 8,000-year-old Mesolithic fish traps that were discovered at Spencer Dock, near the present-day Lewis Red Line stop. Excavations revealed a previously undiscovered shoreline dating back to around 6,000 BC, and the remains of five wooden fish traps dating to that time were found. The traps were made of interwoven rods of hazel and alder and were used in conjunction with fences which funneled fish into the traps which could be retrieved by the fishermen at low tide. These fish traps are the oldest traps found in Western Europe. Recently, another fish trap was discovered at Victoria Quay, 
during the development of the brew house at the Guinness factory at James's Gate, just south of the Lewis Houston stop. This trap is thought to date to the same period as the Spencer Dock traps, which indicates that there was a sizable population living on both sides of the Liffey during Ireland's Mesolithic period. You can see the fish traps on display in the National Museum of Ireland on Kildare Street. St. Stephen's Green St. Stephen's Green Stop is located on the west side of St. Stephen's Green Park, one of Ireland's favourite parks. It covers nine hectares and the original Victorian layout has been preserved to this day. The park contains over three and a half kilometres of pathways, a waterfall, an artificial lake and a number of sculptures. The name St. Stephen's comes from a medieval church and leper hospital founded in 1192. The hospital was located on Stephen Street Lower, some 300 metres northwest of the park. Archaeologists excavating here in 1991 uncovered 146 burials that all dated to the 13th century. In 1663, an area of 27 acres was marked out by the city assembly and the remaining ground was set out in 90 building lots that were made available to rent. The rent generated was used to build walls and paving around the green. In addition, tenants were obliged to plant six sycamore trees each. In 1670, the first paid gardeners were employed. During the Lewis Cross City Works, Archaeologists found an original drainage perimeter boundary ditch that dated back to the foundation of the park. St. Stephen's Green Park became the centre of fashionable Dublin in the 18th century, when the area around Grafton Street and Dawson Street developed. Members of high society perambulated and promenaded up and down the Bow Walk along the northern perimeter. However, the park had deteriorated by the 19th century through neglect. To revitalise the park, a commission representing local householders was given control. They planted more trees and shrubs and erected the enclosing Victorian railings that were manufactured nearby on Dawson Street. However, the commission also caused resentment as they effectively privatised the park and restricted access to residents only. One of the most famous residents of the surrounding area was Sir Arthur Guinness, who lived in Ivy House on the Green. In 1877, he bought the park from the Commission and began a new programme of landscaping, restoration and redevelopment. The artificial lake and waterfall were both created at this time. A noted philanthropist, Sir Arthur donated the park to the people of Dublin and it was reopened to the public in July 1880. St. Stephen's Green Park also has a darker story to tell, as it served as a place of execution up until the 1770s. One of the more infamous executions was that of Darkie Kelly. Her real name was Dirkus Kelly, and she was reputed to be a brothel keeper. One version of her story tells how she became embroiled with Dublin's Hellfire Club, a group of notorious, dissolute, aristocratic rakes, described by Jonathan Swift as a brace of monsters, blasphemers and bacchanalians. 
She is said to have had a child with one of the leading figures of the club, Simon Luttrell, the Sheriff of Dublin. It's said that she tried to blackmail him and in revenge he framed her for the murder of their child and claimed that she was involved in witchcraft. She was executed by being strangled and burned at the stake. More recent research has cast doubt on this story, but the alternative account is no less gruesome. She was arrested after the bodies of five men were found buried in the basement of her brothel in Copper Alley off Fishamble Street in the heart of the oldest part of the city, close to the present-day Darkie Kelly's pub. After she was executed, a group of prostitutes took her body from the gallows and waked it in a house. Thirteen of them were arrested for disorder and sent to Newgate Prison afterwards. St Stephen's Green was one of the key locations during the 1916 Rising. The park was occupied by a group of Irish Citizen Army soldiers under the command of Michael Mallon and Countess Markovich. They fortified their position in the park by digging a series of trenches. However, due to a lack of numbers, they failed to occupy all the tall buildings that surrounded the park. A mistake that was quickly capitalised on by the British forces who took positions in the upper floors of these buildings and rained machine gun and rifle fire down onto the rebels. With the rebel position becoming untenable, Mallon withdrew his forces to the Royal College of Surgeons on St. Stephen's Green West. Despite the heavy fighting around the park, the park keeper, James Carney, continued to feed the large number of ducks that lived in the lake. Every morning, both sides ceased firing to allow him to feed the birds and only resumed when he was safely out of harm's way. Echoes of the fighting during 1916 can still be seen within the park, with several bullet holes visible in the Fusilier's Arch, which functions as the main entrance to St. Stephen's Green, just beside the Lewis Stop. Fusilier's Arch was erected in 1907 to commemorate members of the Dublin Fusiliers killed in the Boer War. Harcourt Street Named after Lord Harcourt, an 18th century Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, the layout of Harcourt Street dates back to the 1770s, when it was constructed on lands that belonged to the Archbishop of Dublin and leased to John Scott, the first Earl of Clonmel, who was better known as Copperface Jack for his abrasive argumentative style and bronze skin tone. He is remembered in the name of the famous nightclub that now occupies the site of his house on 29 Harcourt Street, just a short distance north of this Lewis stop. Harcourt Street has been the home of many famous people through the years. Number four Harcourt Street was the birthplace of Edward Carson. Although today he is associated with Ulster Unionism, he spent his first 38 years living in Dublin. He was a keen hurler who became a very successful lawyer. His most famous case was in the Oscar Wilde versus Marcus of Queensbury libel action in 1895. He successfully defended his client, the Marcus of Queensbury, by his dramatic cross-questioning of Wilde himself, leading to the plaintiff being arraigned for homosexual acts. In 1910, Edward Carson was elected as leader of the Unionist Party. 
He was vehemently against home rule and Irish nationalism and believed that all of Ireland was much better off being part of the Union. His charismatic leadership enabled the foundation of the Ulster Volunteer Force. The situation escalated in 1912 when 400,000 Ulster Unionists signed the Ulster Covenant in protest at the Third Home Rule Bill. Guns were imported to arm the newly formed Ulster Volunteer Force, but following the outbreak of World War I, the political mood shifted, and many of the UVF joined Kitchener's new army to form the 36th Ulster Division of the British Army, effectively postponing the problem of resistance to home rule. The Ulster Volunteer Force were revived in 1920 during the Anglo-Irish War, but eventually came under the control of the Ulster Special Constabulary, more popularly known as the B-Specials. To this day, Edward Carson remains a revered figure in the history of Ulster Unionism. Number 6 Harcourt Street was where the Catholic University of Ireland was established by Cardinal John Newman in 1854. The building was later purchased by the Sinn Féin Cooperative People's Bank in 1910. Michael Collins' Department of Finance was based here after the formation of the first Dáil in 1918, and the building was often raided during the War of Independence. During one raid, Michael Collins was forced to escape through a hatch in the roof of the building and took refuge in Number 8. After the war, the civil service were based in the building. In 1966, the government offered it to Conor Nagelia, who still occupy it to this day. When the Lewis Green Line was being constructed here, archaeologists discovered a small number of cellars. The cellars were constructed to the fore of the buildings which lined the street and were originally used to store coal. Many of these coal cellars were largely intact. The cellars were carefully surveyed and recorded and then infilled to allow the Lewis construction to proceed. The Lewis Harcourt stop is located in front of the Harcourt Street Station building, now functioning as the Odeon. The Harcourt Street railway line opened in 1854. It was another accomplishment of the famous engineer William Dargan. The line became famous for the dance trains that whisked young Dubliners to the Arcadia Ballroom in Bray. Sea breeze excursions introduced by CIE in the 1950s gave passengers the chance to escape the city and allowed Bray to develop into a popular seaside resort. On Valentine's Day 1900, a steam locomotive called the Wicklow, laden with 29 wagons of cattle from Enniscorthy, crashed at Harcourt Street Station. The brakes failed as the train approached the station and the train smashed through the buffer stops and station wall. The engine was left hanging 30 feet above the ground over Hatch Street. Miraculously, nobody was killed in the crash, though the driver was badly injured. The Harcourt Street railway line was closed in 1958, as it had become unprofitable. Today, the Lewis, which extends southeast from Harcourt Street to Brides Glen, largely runs on the same line as the old railway. Charlemont. Charlemont Street is named after Lord Charlemont, whose handsome mansion stands on Parnell Square and now houses the Municipal Gallery of Modern Art. 
In 2004, during the development of the Lewis Green Line, a new bridge was constructed over the Grand Canal at Charlemont, along with similar bridges at Dartmouth, Northbrook and Ranelagh. These bridges replaced earlier railway bridges, removed following the decommissioning of the Harcourt Street railway line. In some instances, the stone abutments remained and were restored and reused. The bridge was dedicated to Professor Simon H. Perry, with a plaque on the inbound platform that describes him as an engineer and promoter of light rail. The Grand Canal was developed in the late 18th century and at the time it revolutionised trade and transport in Ireland. By 1796, the Rings End docks were completed and the entire length of canal through Dublin was opened. One of the first major beneficiaries was Arthur Guinness, who had established his brewery at St James's Gate in 1759. Guinness used the Grand Canal to transport raw materials, like barley, from the Midlands to the brewery. The canals also served as an efficient means of transporting thousands of barrels of stout. The brewery even sourced much of its water from the canal. Dartmouth Square is located just east of Charlemont Bridge. This late Victorian housing development encloses a central park. It was the last in a series of Dublin's Georgian and Victorian residential squares and followed in the footsteps of St Stephen's Green and such developments as Mount Joy, Merion and Fitzwilliam Squares. The park was originally laid out in a planned and formal style with wide streets. Its development coincided with the movement of the middle classes out from the city centre. Owing to its unique architectural heritage, it is now an architectural conservation area. Conclusion Thank you for listening to Lewis, Dublin's Timeline. This guide was produced by Abarta Heritage on behalf of Transport Infrastructure Ireland and the National Transport Authority.